All right, I'm just going to say this, right? I want I want everybody listening to know you do not have to hit pause. You don't have to skip. I'm going to talk a little bit about The Last Jedi right here, but it will be the most spoiler-free discussion you could possibly imagine. I totally understand that the movie just came out and that many or most of you listening to this probably haven't seen it yet. Um, but I do want to talk about it briefly and in the most completely spoiler-free way possible. Um, but you don't have to skip, I promise you. You have my word. Um, Matthew, you had a very exciting story of seeing the movie, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I ended up seeing the... I ended up seeing the movie on a, on the Disney Studios lot at um, on Monday because they had uh, they had a couple of press showings. I didn't go to the the premiere, which was on I think Friday or something, the red carpet. Um, but I did get to see it on the lot, which was fun. I mean, their theaters obviously top notch, you know, sound and and uh, visual quality, all of that stuff. Um, but getting, getting to see it on the lot was, was a lot of fun. That's a pretty cool story. I saw it last night and the uh, first showing in a regular Cineplex here. Um, mm-hmm. liked it a lot. Yeah. I saw it last night for the second time too. Yeah. Uh, I went into it and this is why I, I am sensitive to the spoilers. I went into it knowing less about this movie than any star Wars movie I'd ever seen in my life. And I've always tried to remain spoiler free, but for some reason, my media blackout strategy was more successful this time than any previous movie. I, I I had seen the poster, uh, but I did not look because it was like, it's like unavoidable to not see the poster, but I never looked closely (laughs) at the poster. Didn't see a single, you just looked at the corner of your eye. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but I won't even describe any aspects of the poster. Uh, this is how sensitive to spoilers I am and anybody who has the, the media blackout strategy that I do for this, that I won't even describe any any visual elements of the poster just in case somebody more successful than me has not even seen the poster. That's how sensitive to the spoilers I am. Um, and then and then the la- <laughs> the, the biggest uh, break, the, the biggest crack in the dam of my media stra- blackout strategy was I was in New York Tuesday night um, for the Wednesday morning briefing for the iMac pro that we're, we're about to talk about. And I had dinner with a dear friend of the show, Renee Ritchie. And, uh, coincidentally, while we're at dinner, you texted me, Hey, are you in town? A little slightly too late to, to throw you into the mix for dinner. But I got in a cab to go right. back to my hotel after dinner and this stupid little TV in the back of the back seat of the cab, <laughs> starts it, it, it's the way it, it, it like your, your cab it doesn't kick in until you're like 30 seconds into the cab ride and then it cuts into right. a commercial for the last jedi and i had to look at it so that i could figure out where to jab my finger to shut it off right. and i saw the mute button or the off yeah <laughs> yeah i saw one shot from the movie uh the, that i again i won't describe it at all but i saw a shot from the movie that I would consider a very, very, very mild spoiler, um, mm-hmm. but still was more of a spoiler than I'd gotten. And I can't believe right, that. But I, it gets you thinking then. You right, know, right, you, right, you right, see right. that, and then your brain's like, what does that mean? Did that right. mean this? Right. It, mean it was a shot. It was like a two shots. It was like a, two shots of a scene that put two characters in a certain situation, and it made me think, how did they get in that situation? <laughs> I was, yeah. And the most, it all out. the most amazing part about the success of my blackout strategy was that we were even at uh, uh, Disney World for a day 
over Thanksgiving. We were down in Florida and and spent a day at the Magic Kingdom. And I thought, oh, this is going to be this is this is where it all breaks down. So, the, Disney's right. going to put something up here that you know uh, breaks it. But I didn't. I didn't see anything. I didn't see any toys. I didn't see. I didn't see anything that ruined it. So I was, it was super successful. Anyway, I, anybody. Nice. Uh, last thing I I want to say about it. I thought it was good. Um, I think I enjoyed it more than. Um, uh, the Force Awakens, which I also enjoyed, uh, but I do want—I do want everybody who's a Star Wars fan who listens to the show—you got to go see it soon. You cannot wait because I—I do want to have a Star Wars uh, spectacular episode of the talk show. Probably, you know, tradition would would put it around New Year's. So before the end of the year, you got to see this movie, or else you're going to have to skip the Star Wars spectacular episode of the show. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got so many things to to say about it. I mean, I've been talking. I have a, a private chat group that uh, I've been talking with about this, and we've been going back and forth with, about it since since everybody saw it. We sort of like created a, a branch of our, our normal chat group to to talk about Star Wars, so that people who didn't who hadn't seen it didn't have to you know get spoiled. Uh, and that the branch has been going nuts. We've been yeah. like kind of going back and forth because I, I well I guess you know we should just like stop it there yeah. but i just the the all over twitter this morning people are like reacting to the movie obviously but there's a sort of meta reaction to the reactions because mm. i guess you know like it's rated very well by the critics but the audiences aren't liking it so much you know like the rating wise mm. um but i think that's that's about as far as we need to go with that but i i, I found it interesting you know that the audiences were like you know had some feelings about it that weren't as positive as the critics did um but i think that that uh, in my opinion obviously it's it's a it's a good movie and definitely worth seeing that's yeah. as far as i'll go with it yeah and then uh, yeah you know I, i'll just mention it but that the uh you know remarkable tie-in to this podcast is that the writer and director of the movie is ryan johnson who was on my show to talk about his previous movie Looper uh, three or four years ago mm -hmm. with uh, coordinated right. with friend of the show, uh, Adam Lonely Sandwich, Lisa Gore, um, which was amazing. Uh, and it's it's funny. And I know I get emails about this uh, and I have to fix it. I will fix it. I have those episodes. That episode was in the era when I was on the Mule Network. And mm -hmm. the it, idiots at Mule—they're good friends, but I think it was—I think it's stupid to let the website lapse. But their website went away, so right now, like the canonical archive for that show is like a four hundred four, and I—I I, I have the files. I just need to integrate it back into the thing I hosted during Fireball mm -hmm. right now. But anybody who does want to listen to it, you actually can if you just uh, go to the Internet Archive and look up the old talk show on the Mule Mule Radio. I'll put a link oh, in the, the show. file still yeah, out there. Yeah, I'll put a link mm -hmm. in the uh, show notes, I swear, with a link to that episode in the uh, Internet Archive. So you can listen to it, which was it, it's just an amazing thrill to me that I've actually met. Because we actually recorded that episode in uh, Sandwich Video's office in L.A. So it was actually face-to-face, -face, you know, which I think makes for a better episode. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, it's still thrilling to me that I actually did an episode of the show with the writer and director of the movie. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. He's doing a cool thing yeah. on Twitter too, Ryan Johnson, where his, you know, it's obviously the biggest movie he's ever directed. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's the opening weekend and he's using his Twitter account to like uh, link to a couple of other movies that are opening this weekend and telling people to go see him. <laughs> so it's just a really cool thing.
again, I can't say that he's my friend. He's a guy who I met for three hours in L.A. one afternoon. But everything I know from reading interviews with him and from the time I did spend with him, he he honest and and Adam Lisa Gordon knows him you know better than I do. Um, um, he, he really is, uh, by all accounts, a genuine, you know, the type of person who would just do that, like want to, you know, help somebody whose movie might get lost in Last Jedi Hoopla Weekend, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, I was in New York. You were in New York. There was a briefing. So, I, how many people, how many people of the press were there? About a dozen? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell because there's several groups that went yeah. through, but it seemed to be about that. Yeah, maybe a dozen, maybe 20 uh, mm-hmm. members of the press. Uh, and uh, it was pretty – I thought it was well done. I thought it was a really good rollout. And I also liked the way that – like the, this was Wednesday of this week. And then on Tuesday, uh, the day before – was it Tuesday or was it Monday when a bunch of reviews came out? I forget, but it was a day or two before. Uh, two, uh, yeah, mon- Monday, I think. Oh, yeah. okay. So then Monday, uh, yeah. a, a, a bunch of reviews of the new Mac Pro came out, and I thought it was a really interesting selection of people who got seated. They all got it for about a week. Um, among them, uh, Craig Hunter, who I linked to it during Fireball. He's a aerospace engineer and iOS developer, so that ticks... Uh, sort of kills two birds with one stone, like where he can test it from two different perspectives. Uh, right. Uh, Marquez Brownlee, better known as MKBHD, uh, uh, very well-known, very successful YouTube, uh, or I guess YouTuber, um, and who mm-hmm. has been clamoring for better uh, high-end professional Mac hardware because he shoots his videos with an 8K RED camera and edit has been editing on a 2013... Mac Pro, which at the mm-hmm. time was a, such a, a you know a gorgeous wow, this is an impressive machine, and it in twenty late twenty seventeen as twenty seventeen comes to a close, it makes you laugh thinking about editing eight K video in it on it. Uh, right. Who else right. got it? Yeah. Uh, oh, Cable Sasser from Panic was was given one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think who else, but some developers, some video people. Uh, I forget, but it was, you know, and I thought it was a really good rollout and I thought an interesting um, contrast, in my opinion, to the iPhone 10 rollout where the, that initial batch of here's the first people who've gotten to see iPhone 10 were like these uh, uh, fashion YouTube type people. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it was it was like a obviously a an iteration on that thing that they did with the iPhone 10 of saying, hey, here's some people with internet audiences who may not read mainstream publications or even uh, tech industry publications or whatever uh, that we want to sort of, you know, get an early, uh, give an early look at so that they can talk to those people in their own voice and the people that watch them like TV or whatever um, instead of regular TV uh, will get that you will get that, get that look. So it was less, I think about, <clears throat> and it, it may have been somewhat about seeding the early, uh, buzz with relatively lightweight, positive hands-ons, you know, because yeah. they weren't reviews, right? They were like, Hey, look at this thing. Right. And and then there was a couple of them that actually got to like use the phone and live with it for a few days. And, but not in that first batch still though, very no. much impressions. But in that first batch that it was really, and it wasn't even clear, <clears throat> like, 
part of it, it wasn't even clear to me, and I pay close attention to it. But in that first batch, they were at they were in New York in the 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 same building where Apple's been holding all these briefings recently. Um, sort of like mm-hmm. I don't even know how you would describe it. It's like a big, I want to say townhouse, but it's so much bigger and wider than a typical townhouse. It's you know. Uh, just a big penthouse, three three stories. Yeah, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I think that there were some people outside of that group, though. There was – I know what you mean. There was a set of people that they got together yeah. and they brought into that room. And <sighs> you could tell because you looked at the YouTube videos and they're right. all the same, right. right? They're all the same surroundings and everything. And they brought in the, them in there and had them play with it and then they cut together what they we would call in the business like a social cut, right? right? Like a, a cut of video that, that is primed for social or for YouTube or whatever – the case may be. Um, and some of them cut them differently than others, right? There were some some folks who actually I thought did good commentary. Like they were sitting there talking to the camera, giving commentary, and then they would cut to them like handling the phone in that room, you know? But you could tell that they didn't have it, right? They weren't like, hey, you know, I've had this and blah, right. blah, blah. Um, but I think there were some other influencers, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Um, but it's it, that had it, you know, that actually they gave it to, but maybe I'm wrong. But yeah. I, the, for the by and large, the first batch of stuff that we got was that. Right. It was those people that they brought into this room to like handle it for an hour or two, and then they went and, and cut together a video from it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I had some public snark about that strategy uh, for the iPhone 10. Uh, and then a couple of people, like when MKBHD's video dropped this week for um, for the iMac Pro, I got a couple of tweets like, "Ah, oh, YouTubers again! How come you know?" And I was like, "No, no, no! You guys are nuts." MKBHD might have been if if they had Apple had asked me like name one person who should get the iMac Pro a week in advance for like the first review he might have been on my short list of people who I would have suggested because what he would do would be exactly what needs to be done which is truly stress test the the performance of it um mm-hmm. you know and yeah, it, it's literally what he does all day you know right. so it, it's I, I really like the 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 philosophy of it's not necessarily like hey who's a good reviewer of hardware because that's fine you know right. that's definitely one way to look at it but it's um hey who would actually use this hardware in the pursuit of what they're doing, yeah. you know, of, of whatever profession that they're in. And, um, you know, in the case of a YouTuber shooting, you know, high res video and needing to turn it, turn it around quickly with, you know, a lot of visual tricks right. and, and cutting and all of that stuff. Um, you know, it, it definitely fits the bill. Yeah. And that's, that's why I think it was like a nice iteration of what the yeah. iPhone 10 stuff. Cause you know, the iPhone 10, whether you like it or not, whatever, you know, whoever's viewing those videos is definitely a different audience than, yeah. than the typical audience you would get in either print or web uh, publications. And that's fine. Yeah. But I think that in this case, the, the pre-seed, you know, or whatever you want to call it, the people that were given the, the Mac pros, iMac pros, excuse me, early, um, were definitely people that that would use them in day to day, you know, scenarios, and it was a nice spread across from developer software developers to um, they had some people in there doing medical stuff. They had mm-hmm. people doing um, they had people doing um, audio professional work, right? right? Like Logic Pro, amazing experts, like high end producers and stuff of Logic that use Logic Pro, uh, and they had people obviously doing video and that sort of thing. So it was a nice wide gamut of people, and they did not necessarily just cede it to people who just 
love Apple. Right. Right. Like, oh, the, you know, well, OK, well, they ceded it to these people because they gush about Apple all the time. They ceded it to people who I felt expressed publicly many times, you know, frustration or or, you know, criticism or whatever, not unwarranted and but also not not necessarily reactionary. Yep. Right. Or or uh, unresearched or whatever. They actually look. These people are critics because they care. Um, we're going to give them this thing that we think will solve or or address some of those criticisms about Apple and pro users over the last X days or months or years, uh, and we'll see what they think. So I thought that they did a good job of balancing that out. It wasn't just like let's give Apple friends this thing and so they could say it's great, you know? Yeah, I thought, um, Craig, so I thought it was good. I thought Craig Hunter's was a good example of that, where he was saying like, here's you know, he was running like a aerospace simulation of like uh, here's a wing from a certain airplane. And let's run these tests to to get the aerodynamic properties of this wing, which as, you know, even a layperson can understand. Yeah, probably pretty CPU intensive mm -hmm. um, right. or GPU. I don't even know. But, you know, one or the other, it's computationally in, in, uh, difficult. Uh, and his like, here's a bunch of machines I've run the same test on over the last few years. And it, you know, included some Macs like like I think I, I, Mac Pro, maybe a MacBook Pro. But a lot of the other tests that he'd been running in recent years were on Linux servers, um, you know, which again shows you that it's not just from a somebody who's only using Apple hardware and only coming from that, you know, whatever it is, it's going to be a Mac perspective. Um, you know, somebody who's who's as uh, just looking for the fastest compute possible and therefore is, you know, more than happy to be, you know, just run it on a Linux server. Yeah. And there's, I think there is a, uh, supposition on the behalf. And I tweeted about this a little bit yesterday because I, basically what I said was, you know, the, my, the title writing about it was that the iMac, Pro is a love letter to developers. And I mm. think people took that to mean that Apple had solved all the developers' problems and this was the perfect computer for all developers and that, you know, some sort of like, you know, hagiography hey, of their efforts to build this computer, right? And, you know, if if you read the article, it's not that, but it also the the way that I was going with that is that not necessarily that I meant that this computer was the best computer for all developers, which is definitely how some developers took it and took exception to it, which is fine. Um, you know, you gotta, gotta be willing to take the heat if you're going to jump in the fire. But the way that I meant it, which felt came through, if you actually read the piece, um, is that it was their effort to, to write that letter and to send it. And now whether you're not, you're in love or whether or not you believe them or, you know, or whether or not you, it is right for you is a whole different matter. But I do believe it showed a distinct effort by them to address a market that wants an integrated machine you know, a machine with an incredibly, you know, great screen and, you know, high res and all of that stuff uh, and a lot of power to do whatever they want, but doesn't necessarily need the modularity. And buys a new computer every probably four to five years anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this thing should scale for that period of time. Uh, and I think that Apple sees that. They see an um, uh, a in market terms, this would, what you would call a product that, that goes under another product's umbrella, right? So that you have the umbrella of, let's say, the Mac Pro. Uh, you have this, like, high-end umbrella where people need modularity or whatever. And then down below that, you have things like MacBooks and things like that, which people use professionally, but don't necessarily, obviously, have the graphics power, specifically, you know, for instance, uh, of something like the Mac Pro. And they figured that there's this bolus of people that were taking iMacs and confused 
to try and fit them into that gap. Yeah. You know, they were using IMAX in professional settings and configuring them the best that they could to get them into that area. And they're like, hey, we can just fill this in, right? And capture that that portion of the market. So I think from a market perspective, that's the strategy. And that that offering is to those people. And then I think that the people that take exception to that offering or find that it's lacking in some way, which is 100% valid, they are more than welcome to feel that way. And those feelings are valid. And I'm not trying to shoot anybody down that says this isn't the computer for them and be like, no, it's a computer for everybody because it's not. But it definitely fits a market that they aren't seeing, yeah. but that Apple is seeing. Yeah. You know? And I think that they're out there. And, and I ran a little poll and my poll pointed out or my my poll, which is obviously biased and limited by my uh, you know followers and blah blah blah, right? So this is not you know scientific, but the the poll, which honestly did go out to a lot of people who follow me because I cover Apple, um, so you got that going for you in this case. Um, it basically came out to a lot of people are going to buy this computer and they're software developers and they like it, and then there was a smaller but very sizable chunk, like half or a quarter quarter of that, you know, in response that said, no, I'm going to wait for the Mac Pro. And I think that's exactly what Apple sees. I honestly think that ratio is exactly what they see. Yeah. They see a big chunk of people that will buy this computer and they see a smaller chunk of people that are going to wait for the Mac Pro. And that's why they're building it. Yeah. All Sorry, right. that's a longer, longish thing, but no, anyway, it's, that's and, what I think. And it's, it's, it's a good points to take off from there. But in the meantime, let's, let's take our first break and thank our first sponsor. It's a, our good friends at Away. I love this company. I love their products. Um, Away bags and accessories make the perfect gift for the holidays. Uh, you still have time to get one. Um, listen to the show right now. Go jump on their website, and you can definitely still get an Away travel bag for someone in your family or ask for it yourself if somebody's looking to – because to me, that's always the problem is people in the family uh, will say, hey, John, what do you want for Christmas? And it, it's uh, – it's always hard for me because I, as soon as I think that I want something, I tend to just go, go and buy it for myself. So there's really little left in the world. But if you're in the market for a new suitcase and somebody's looking to get you a gift, this is a great idea. And I'll tell you what, I've said this before too. I suffered for years, I mean years, until I got the suitcase from away and realized what an idiot I was, that I'd been using the same carry-on bag since like uh, – God, I don't even know when. I don't, it might have even been like in the late 1990s or something like that. The wheels barely, barely rolled. It was more like I drug it through airports. <laughs> uh, most of the pockets were ripped. It was frayed. I looked like uh, some kind of traveling hobo or something. Uh, getting a new suitcase, boy, does it make going to the airport easier. Um, so away bags and accessories make a perfect gift. They have a lifetime guarantee. They have a 100-day trial. And there's a perfect size and color for everyone on your list this holiday season. Or you can grab an away gift card if you can't make up your mind or you don't know, you don't want to pick a color for somebody else or something like that because they really do have a wide variety of colors. Away uses high-quality materials, and they offer a much lower price for a comparable high-quality brand because they cut out the middleman and they sell direct to you. you just They make it. They ship it right to you, and there's no retail markup. They've got over 10 colors and five sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, the large, and the kids carry-on for smaller travelers. And, and they're exactly what you think. You know, the 
carry-on and the bigger carry-on. The bigger carry-on is like the maximum carry-on you could possibly fit in an overhead on a, on an airplane. But it would have, almost, you know, one of those carry-ons that doesn't fit on the overhead on like a medium-sized airplane. Uh, medium, large, exactly what you think they are. All of their suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate that's very lightweight, never bends, never breaks. I've had mine, I think, for two years, maybe a little longer, something like that. Still looks brand new. I thought I had a scuff on it the last time I looked at it, and I just like uh, rubbed it with my thumb, and it came right off. I don't know what it was. Really, really great. The interior features a patent-pending compression system, helpful for overpackers. They've got just the right number of compartments inside. You don't have to like read instructions to figure out what's what, but there's like an area for your shirts, and then you put a thing on top of it, hold it shut, and then your shirts won't get wrinkled. Nothing else will touch them. Um, they have a little bag in there that you can put your dirty clothes in to keep them separate from the clean clothes. Four 360-degree spinner wheels, uh, a TSA-approved combination lock, uh, and and here's the kicker. The carry-ons, the carry-on and the larger carry-ons, have a built-in charger with two USB ports. So you're at any seat at the airport while you're waiting for your flight you've got a charger right there available to you with your suitcase right by you. So you don't have to hunt around the airport for like the two seats that have like a USB socket or a, a wall socket nearby. Uh, cannot tell you how convenient that is. Really, really great. Uh, I just love that feature. Uh, and again, there's a 100-day free trial. And they have free shipping on any away order within the contiguous 48, U.S. 48 states. Um, so there you go. It's a great product. I really love it. Uh, and you can get $20 off a suitcase if you visit awaytravel.com slash talk show and use that promo talk show during checkout. So uh, not only is it a great product, not only right now, today, is it literally still in time for the holidays, but you'll save 20 bucks if you use that promo code talk show and go to awaytravel.com slash talk show. My thanks to Away. Um, I really like that product. Anyway, uh iMac Pro, love letter to developers. And then the, <laughs> the developers who pipe up and say, well, it's not for me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like... No, I'm not in love. Right. I don't care. I feel like it's an interesting contrast to Apple's current laptop market, which is there is no way to make one computer that makes everybody happy. Because if somebody, what somebody really wants, and I, I don't know what specific complaints you heard from people who don't want a pro machine from hardware, aren't complaining about the price per se, realize that, that, that the pricing of the iMac Pro is in line with what it's actually offering, um, but simply don't like it. The thing I've heard already is, and, and it shouldn't be a surprise, I don't even think this was news this week, but I think now that it officially shipped, they're willing to bark about it, is the lack of internal expandability. And you, mm -hmm. you can't even upgrade the RAM uh, as a user, there's no little screw panel that you can unscrew and, and add more RAM or change the RAM. Although you can, if you buy one that's not like maxed out on RAM, you can take it to a, like a service center or an Apple store and get it upgraded, you know, as like a, a official service thing with Apple. So it's not like you literally can't, it's not like the RAM is soldered onto the motherboard like it is on some laptops, um, but mm -hmm. it's just not user accessible. Uh, that's the right. complaint I've heard about, but uh, it's like, that's, that's the iMac. You know what I mean? It's, it's, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no way to have everything. And so the difference I see. No, it's like it's like blaming a platypus for having a bill. I mean, <laughs> you know, they have bills. And, and I realized that the new Mac Pro is not yet shipping and they're not even suggesting when it might be. Uh, and as usual for Apple, even off the record, they had, you know, I asked and they had no comment. <laughs> We're here to talk about uh, iMac Pro today. <laughs> I knew that that was going to be the answer. You know, any hint, any hint. You, I don't want to quote you. I'm not going to say just like a, a hint as to like maybe what quarter it's coming. <laughs> and the answer was, yeah. we're here today There's to talk about the iMac. rhyme with flannuary. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, so I have no inside juice on when the new Mac Pro might ship. No little birdies, no hint. It, it, it literally could be February or it could be next December or it they might even be worried that it won't ship in 2018. I honestly don't know. It could be imminent, it could be far off. I don't know. My guess though is that it is not imminent. My guess would be that the best case scenario, this is a pure guess, would be something parallel to last year where they announced the iMac Pro at WWDC and shipped at the end of the year where maybe by WWDC they'll be willing to show it and say what it does and give a later this year estimate. But I don't think it's coming anytime soon. And I don't, I definitely don't think it's shipping in the first half of the year because I don't think they would have rolled out the iMac pros the way they did if it were, but that's just, I I could be totally wrong on that and I'd be happy to be wrong. Yeah. I don't know anything further either, obviously, and uh, I don't. Um, I, I can't really disagree with you. I, I think that sounds reasonable. Um, I, I don't get the feeling that it is like right around the corner or anything like that either. Uh, I think they're they're giving this thing some breathing room, yeah. um, you know, in terms of announcing it and, and letting it fly and all that. And I, they obviously wanted it out. They promised it out this year. They wanted it out this year, and they got it out this year. The iMac Pro, uh, but it, as far as like you know, how much that matters for their like holiday quarter or any of that. I really don't think that they're counting on no. it mattering a ton. No, I don't um, think so. Either. They just wanted to get it out and so it's out. Yeah. And that's why we have this late December kind of, hey, it's out, yeah. you know. Uh and here's the the sweet spot, you know, ten core. You can get that now. Yeah. Most people that's great. And then for science or, you know, ML or other specialists, the the higher core options will be shipping in January. Yeah. And so I think the interesting contrast with the with their laptop line though is that even not knowing the specifics of the new Mac Pro or knowing other than that they're working on it and that they took that truly unusual step of talking to us about it last April and saying, you know, you know, talking about having gotten backed into a thermal corner with the trash can Mac Pro design and saying, look, we hit, we're hitting a reset button, but we're committed to the pro market. We're coming out with a new pro machine. We're coming out with a new pro uh, standalone display for this pro machine. But we, you know, it's in the future. And we also have, an mm-hmm. I, you know, a pro config iMac also in the works that will come out sooner. But I think it's interesting that they, mm-hmm. it's two different things. It's you've got the iMac Pro for the people who the pros who are perfectly fine with the sealed box limited, you know, uh, you know, you've got some options up front to buy. And then once you buy it, that's it. And pretty much whatever you do to quote expand it is going to be through Thunderbolt three or, you know, Mm -hmm. USB. Um, and on the other side for the pros who really want configurability inside the box is this upcoming Mac pro. 
And I think that's interesting to compare with the laptops where the complaints put the keyboard aside, which I think is to me the biggest complaint about the new Mac MacBook Pros. But the other complaints like, hey, I don't need a thinner machine. I, I'll take a thicker machine and keep a bunch of USB ports and keep the SD card slot and et cetera, et cetera. That they've really only that their pro laptops right now really only fit the side of the pro laptop market that doesn't want expandability that doesn't want a whole bunch of ports that doesn't would take a thicker case to have a bigger battery like there's room like i feel like the problem with the macbook pro lineup is that i really feel like there should be two types of macbook pro like the macbook pro that is as thin and sleek as possible and the macbook pro that is physically bulkier like you know not fat but let's just say sort of like the 2013 2014 era macbook pros but still has a bunch of old school usb 3 ports in addition to usb c ports etc mm -hmm. yeah sort of the uh you know as powerful as you can get it and still be portable right version yes exactly like the as close as you can get to a portable workstation mm-hmm so I feel like desktop so users. So you're basically arguing for like an like an iMac Pro portable, right? <laughs> like, right. Like you know, the MacBook Pro should be like, hey, we have uh, the MacBook Pro, and you know, it it'll get you where you need to go, iMac style, where you can configure it pretty powerful. Uh, but then we have this other MacBook <laughs> MacBook Pro Pro that can that can really you know, maximize yeah. your battery life and, and, you know, you can configure it with massive, yeah. uh, massively powerful processors and all that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, you know, iMac pro is obviously what we want to talk about this week, but, and I really do feel if there's anything I want to convey to the listeners of the show or the readers of my site is that if you're just trying to get your head wrapped around the basic story is do not be fooled by the external appearance of the machine and think that it's an iMac with a darker, cooler-looking anodization and, you know, slightly speed-bumped CPUs and components. Like, it, inside, it is truly a completely different architecture. There's, there's, I, I, there's, it's really a different computer. They, I mean, and Apple in the briefing really spoke about it as though it was a different line. You know, it's called iMac, but it's it's really in their minds a completely different line of computer from the iMac. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they they said that the the kind of like impression that you get was that they were designing this as an entirely new machine and that they, they wanted to make it as powerful as possible. And the only constraint that they had, I guess, in some ways was like, hey, that display we just came out with it. It's brand new. We love it. Everything we're, everything's fine with that. We have no problem with it. So we're going to use the same casing and display. And then everything else from then on is like, okay, so how do we make this the absolute most powerful, ridiculous iMac ever? Um, and then go from there. Yeah. And, and honestly – just speaking from this perspective of somebody who keeps a PC for gaming and VR and it sits right next to my Mac, like, you know, I have a, a 4K monitor hooked to my PC that sits on my desk and a tower, a PC tower under my desk and then an iMac uh, next to it for, for most of my daily work. I could tell you that it has been years 
since the Mac competed on any real level with what I could buy off the shelf graphics wise. Yeah. You know, on a PC. And and now you can argue about price or specific capability or, or whatever. But right now, the iMac Pro is something that you could buy and comfortably expect to game at top level graphic settings and use for VR. And that's a massive like it's new. For in, in many years it has not been the case. Yeah, and it really is a jump from all the way from I, I absolutely can't even um, can't even use a Mac. It's not like you can limp along. Like you just you couldn't even do the like Oculus or HTC Vive VR with a Mac, any Mac. Um, right. To, and I tried it. I did. And I mean, I I did it very, very early and it was terrible. Right. To, <laughs> you couldn't really. It was unusable to these machines being not just credible, but very, very good machines to drive these experiences. Well, specifically the HTC Vive. Uh, right now, I don't think Oculus works with it. It's not just that all the demos that we saw this week were on the HTC Vive. Um, and I think it goes through. They all go through the Steam Vive VR thingamajig that i don't really know much about <laughs> but it's yeah yeah they will the mac just to fill in the gap the the mac got uh official vive support via steam um as of wwdc hmm. so um and i think they shipped it i can't remember where they shipped it in beta or full version at wwdc but basically um they were as of dubbed up you were able to launch steam get your update plug in your Vive to your Mac and start using it for VR. Uh, that is, of course, theoretically, because the top tier, you know, VR applications um, really didn't run super well on most iMacs. In, you know, in the modern, uh, if you'd bought an iMac this year, you know, yeah. uh, with the best capabilities stuff, uh, but he was definitely not going to give you what we would consider a top tier VR experience. Uh, but obviously they were planning because they knew this was coming out. So, uh, it it really was, and and I'll just say this: I mean, you 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 know, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the show this week was that you know more about VR than anybody I know, and so you know, and I <laughs> I'm not gonna say I know the least, but I know little. Um, and so I want to I want you there to double check my impressions of the VR stuff that I saw this week, you know, demoed. Um, it, it, another thing I didn't really mention it. I wish I had in, in my write up yesterday. But uh, after all, most of the demos that we had, it was sort of like you'd walk around. You know, we were in smaller groups broken up and we, it was like little demo stations throughout Apple's building. And we'd go see the demo from this company, you know, for 15, 20 minutes and then, you know, Time's up. We'll go, you know, just round robin. We'll rotate to the next group. And after most of them, especially the ones that I thought were the most technically impressive, I'd, I'd walk behind the machine and like put my hand to see if I could, you know, hear the fan, if I could feel it. Did it feel like the machine was red hot or anything like that? Um, mm -hmm. And in none of the cases, even the ones after, you know, where we were like the third or fourth group to go through the demo on the same setup, it, it never felt hot. I never heard the fan. Uh, I'm not saying the fan wasn't blowing. I'm just saying that if if there was something going on to 
you know, push heat out. It wasn't noisy and it definitely wasn't hot. And in fact, today I even tried it. I, now I've still got the 2014, the original 5k iMac is still my desktop machine here. I put my hand at where the fan is on my iMac and it was hotter and I'm not even doing anything. <laughs> I mean, I've just got, you know, a bunch of Safari tabs open and mail and, and it's just <laughs> running and it is silent. My yeah. iMac is... I have a can cook an egg on it. <laughs> right. My iMac is silent. Uh, it, it's not making any noise, but it, I put my hand back there and it was warmer than the Mac, the iMac Pro in the demos on, on Wednesday. So mm-hmm. the thermal stuff that they're doing is incredible, given that it's, it's got this high-end performance. Yeah, I have the same Mac. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's the exact same configuration, but the late 2014 uh, Retina 5K, um, and it's the i7. And that it definitely, you know, yeah, it gets hot. It gets warm. I mean, I can feel the heat coming off of it um, because it's kind of next to a wall, so it vectors out, and I can feel the heat coming from behind it sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and I do think that this ties into... I, 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 for anybody out there who's frustrated that this machine isn't more configurable, isn't user configurable, that you're, why am I going to spend $12,000, which you can easily do. You can easily configure one of these things to, to run ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars $12,000. Why am I going to spend $11,000 on, on a workstation that I can't change the graphics card in or, or whatever? Um, I think the way that they got this thermal performance where it stays quiet and cool is that by limiting it to these, you know, two graphics cards, four CPU options that they, you know, figured out exactly what the thermal aspects of these specific components are and designed a system just for them. You know, like I feel like it, they, the closed nature of the of the system, the remarkably small size that it really just looks like a monitor with a bulge on the back. It's no bigger physically than a regular iMac. Um, it goes hand in hand with the limited configurability. Yes, it's sort of like um, custom built is is the wrong word, but um, sort of bespoke hardware in a way. Yeah, where it's like, hey, look, if you need to accomplish these tasks, here's the minimum amount of hardware space and the maximum amount of power we can give you uh, to get this thing done. And it really, you know, now that it is Visa mountable because you can remove the foot now, which you didn't used to be able to do. You to, had to order it from the factory that way. Um, you know, people will be mounting these things everywhere and they'll have like an incredibly powerful workstation in the size of a monitor. And I think that that is overlooked by a lot of people who want maximum modularity, which are, once again, I understand. Uh, but a lot of people don't want modularity. And I think that a certain audience of people underestimates how many professional users there are that don't give a crap about modularity and just want the maximum amount of power with the least fuss possible, like no cables besides power, right? No, no messing around with towers and where do I mount this and where do I mount that and all of this. And the, the uh, uh, applications for that are very, very widespread. You know, one of the ones that we saw in the demos was a medical application, for instance, right? These uh, these guys were doing uh, taking CT scan slices and then turning them into a model in near real time, essentially. And then yeah, or a surgeon can look at that 3D model and rotate it and say, look, look, here's a vascular system in, uh, from this CT scan, which these things were possible for sure. They've been possible for a long time. So it's not like, oh, this is brand new. But the real time nature of it, how quick it is, 
for them to, to dump uh, a folder full of CT scans into this program and then pop open a 3D model seconds later and then rotate that yeah. model in real time in high res. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of thing mounted to a wall in a briefing room or in an office where they can instantly show a patient what they're talking about to try and give them better understanding and alleviate yeah. some anxiety or to give them better, uh, better knowledge going into a surgery. That – at that point – those thousands of dollars that people say, oh, you got to spend X, Y, and Z on this, on this computer and blah, blah, blah. That's nothing. That's nothing. CT machines are yeah. in the tens of millions of dollars. Well, you know, and what and do you so think? Like, and what do you this think? This is an accessory, right? You know, and, and we, it was this company is called Osirix, O S I R I X, with the capital X, uh, and they've been around. They said they're a Swiss company, I believe. They've been around for fourteen years, and their Mac only or really apple only because they have an ios app too but they're to me they're oh, I, i've never heard of them before because i'm not a medical professional but to me they're like the poster children for like the type of developers apple loves to talk about where their app looks like a real mac app and it totally it's all modernized for you know the sierra high sierra look um and, and, you know, if you've ever been, if you've ever, like me, I, I cannot help it. I look at the user inter interface of everything, right? And I think about the user interface of everything I ever see. And whenever I'm in, like, a doctor's office or the dentist's office or whatever, and I look, it's usually always these janky Windows apps that are just horribly designed and look like they were probably were in fact designed for like windows xp in 2001 and it just mm -hmm. still running now like their app looks like a real mac app like that you know like the type of thing that that like a consumer if it was you had a consumer you know that would be like a consumer app right. that would look great on the front page of the app store um Mm -hmm. But they mentioned it. So they've been around for 14 years or they've been shipping for 14 years. So obviously the the thing that they do, you know, they were running 14 years ago, obviously on f far less powerful hardware. Um, but that mm -hmm. the big difference between what they could do now on the iMac Pro and where they've been before is that they, it's gone from like a 2D experience where you're like – let's say somebody has a knee injury and you're like a, a orthopedic surgeon and you're looking at these CT scans instead of like going between a bunch of still images at different depths of the knee in three dimensions. It, it now can be like a 3d viewing experience where you're kind of, you know, moving mm -hmm. the, the camp, the camera for lack of a better word through the knee in three dimensions. And they, you know, these you could just see the enthusiasm of the developers. They were like, "Yeah, we were blown away. We never really thought we never thought when we started this app over a decade ago that it would be a 3D viewer for this stuff." And like right. you said, they said, their initial version was literally just an image viewer. You know, it's just like, right. "Hey, look, here's a JPEG <laughs> that you can look at." Right, and it's exactly like you said that uh, you know, in terms of well, you know, geez, that must be nice to run on a you know ten thousand dollar iMac, but for the cost of the medical equipment that's in like a radiologist lab, the $10,000 iMac is <laughs> nothing. Right. Like, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. The, and so like, just so, just so people don't at me, um, I looked up the cost of a CT machine because <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, how much did it actually cost? Because I, I remember them costing this much a while back because I, I have my wife's in med the medical field, a uh, medical industry and has been for a uh, long time. 
time, 15 years. Uh, but so right now, a 360 slice, which is sort of like high-end CT scanner, costs you like two and a half to three million dollars. So let's call it three million dollars. We'll round it up. Um, if, if the an iMac Pro <laughs> with this piece of software on it, which is like seven hundred dollars a seat for the software, and then like four thousand dollars for the iMac Pro, like a ba- five thousand for the base model, like ten core or whatever it is, or you know something like that. Let's call it five to seven thousand. This is literally a, an upsell accessory that they throw in. You know what I mean? Right. Like they're like, oh yeah, and we'll get you a full three D view of it within seconds. With our proprietary software or, you know, whatever, white-labeled software and, and or this software package and this iMac mounted to the side of it, like with zip ties or whatever. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like that comes with, so to speak. And I think that people lose perspective on that because a lot of the people that are very vocal about it, which I understand, are, you know, enthusiasts or independent developers where the budget very much matters to them. And I get it. And, you know, this may not be the machine for them. They may want to maximize something where they can make a large investment up front and then smaller investments over time upgrading it, you know, as parts or or modules can be upgraded, which is 100 percent valid complaint or not even complaint, but just statement to make like philosophy to have about your computing purchases. But in many cases like this will, you know, the iMac Pro will do some jobs for such a long time that they amortized out. It, it is an incredibly negligible expense. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of people that this will do a lot of good work for over time. Yeah. And I thought it was also interesting. I mean, again, you know, in addition to showing off the iMac Pro, the the developers who were invited were, uh, you know, a, a part of the quid pro quo of, okay, well, you're going to give Apple your time to travel to New York and to spend the time to rehearse and put these things together as they can, you know, brag about and promote their products. Uh, and these guys mentioned that the, in 2016, they had 35% growth. You know, and again, this is a 14-year-old app. And that this year, 2017, they're on pace for 45% growth, Um you know, which is to me super impressive for a 14 year old app that it still is obviously uh, rapidly growing in the market. I mean, 45% growth in a, for a 14 year old app is incredible, but I really think it shows that it's paid off for these guys to commit themselves to the Mac as a, as a platform. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that there's a segment of, of people. And I think that some of them are represented, of course, no no uh, surprise in these groups of people that were demoing you know that that apple had brought in and say hey look these people are building really cool mac apps that will benefit from the mac pros imac pros increased power um you know very very evidently they will benefit very quickly um but then you'll have a long tier of people a long tail of people where you have market segments that are have been served by PCs, and I think I don't think Apple's blind to the fact that if they were to introduce something like the iMac Pro, that it might in in fact take some of that market as well. Yeah. In other words, they're not just eating the market of people who are buying high-end iMacs. They are also going after certain segments of the market where they can fill gaps. Um, Gravity Sketch, which is one of the other yeah. apps that was demoed there, I had spoken to these folks previously. I'd spoken to the co-founder. Uh, a, a while back uh, and he was there demoing the apps and uh demoing the app rather and they he comes from an automotive background um and that uh that background basically was in the design and modeling phase of automotive uh and the um 
the issue that they have with that is with the with that industry is that if they want to by the by they I mean Gravity Sketch if they want to appeal to these people um, with their virtual reality. 3D sketch and modeling application for the automotive industry and other industries that are looking to design straight into 3D. Uh, their issue for the long time had been, hey, we've got a, these people, these designers who are working on Macs through the whole process. Like designers love Macs. Everybody knows this. So you've got an automotive guy who's working on Mac through his whole um, process and then you know uh, gets to this point in the process where um, – they want to try this gravity sketch thing, which is in VR, yep. and they have to switch to a PC yep. because this, you know, this program runs on PC and it, you know, it needs the power of a high-end graphics card and a high-end CPU to really get them flowing and yep. and and sketching in 3D and all of this uh, to eliminate a lot of cost in the clay modeling segment of a of yep. car development. So if you don't know anything about car development, essentially they go through a bunch of design phases, including sketching. But in between each of those, they typically do a clay model. So they'll do like a sketch and then a clay model and then CAD and then a clay model and then um, aerodynamics and then a clay model and you know so on and so forth. And so one car can have like a dozen clay models made of it at one point or another. And those are expensive and time consuming. And so they're trying to like supplant a lot of that where you could kind of go into Gravity Sketch really model it out as you would in a clay model and then dump that into an environment where you can get precise like CAD or something like that. Yep. So they are very much a sketch application um, that takes the place of a lot of physical modeling that wouldn't normally take place in the process of creating a new vehicle. Um, but in in the case of you know selling into a company that you already uses a bunch of Macs, they would have to go like, oh, and you have to get PCs yep. you know, to, yeah, to use here. I, so I, instead – I thought, They've got this down. I thought their enthusiasm as – look, we know that the people in our target audience are longtime Mac users because they're creative professionals and they love their Macs. And we like Macs. You know, like Their enthusiasm for getting this running on the Mac to integrate you know, for exactly the reasons you said I thought was palpable. And it, it's the sort of thing that you could say, well, of course they were pro Macintosh because they were at an Apple-hosted briefing. But it really doesn't work like that. You know, like it's, it was – I thought it was legit, and it makes sense. And it makes sense for the reasons you said. Yeah, I, I got to play with Gravity Sketch Wednesday. <laughs> you insisted that I try all the VR stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I found I was so. You, now wait, I want to know because at the time you said, "Oh, I you hadn't tried it much." So, what experience had you had in VR before you put? the headset on for the first time at that gravity sketch so demo i had I, I forgot about the one uh which is actually the one i've probably spent the most time in uh so uh a year or so ago i got a backstage tour at uh mlb in new york uh people who make the at bat app and actually you know like disney's bought like a majority stake or bought all of their media thing yeah uh but they're, they're part of yeah MLB uh, AM, which is Advanced Media. I don't know what they're called now, but yeah, they they, they spun out. They're right. their own company now. Right. They have some of the best iOS developers in the world, in my opinion. And they also have some of the best uh, streaming video technology in the world. Because mm -hmm. if you remember, if you go back a few years when HBO first started trying to stream their stuff, it would fall apart every time a new episode of Game of Thrones came out. 
Uh, right. And when they like hit the reset button and redid it, what they really did was outsource it all to MLB's media. And the fact that everybody can watch, no, you know, the fail whale isn't a thing for Game of Thrones streaming episodes anymore is all because it's on the, the MLB back end. But anyway, I was there, took a tour, and one of their developers was working on a, a VR thing. Uh, I think it was like simulated view in a ballpark type thing. Uh, so I tried that for like five minutes. I forget what hardware mm-hmm. it was, but it wasn't great. I think it was like a first gen Oculus or something like a developer kit. Right. Um, I bought the thing when I bought the pixel one over a year ago, I bought the headset that Google sells with it. It's like a six. It's not like the cardboard box thing. It's a step above that, but it's pretty much just put your pixel in this felt visor and mm-hmm. I don't know, spent an hour or two playing around with it. Uh, and the last thing, which I forgot when we were talking Wednesday, is that my son Jonas has the PlayStation VR, and I haven't oh, really right. played Got it. it. Okay. I'm not a, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a gamer, but I was interested enough in it as a technology where I was like, well, give me this thing. I gotta, I gotta see what this is like. Mm-hmm. So I've used PlayStation mm-hmm. VR. That's my experience yeah. going and into so, this. And so, so far, I mean, I'm, and just this is like just a setup, right? So, so far up until this point, your experience with it had largely been, you know, okay, uh, early, rough, uh, then the the mobile portable, right. right? Which are definitely have a lot of a lot of downsides still, right? They're, they've come so far, but still very uh, much not a top of the line experience. Right. And then the PlayStation VR, which is actually pretty damn good, yep. but it's it's a purely single viewpoint camera-based experience so it's got these colored markers these lights on it and the camera sees those markers and that's how it tracks like your head movements and all that so then the going into this experience with the vive uh, which you did a couple uh, at this event you've got what they call lighthouses which are yep. uh, infrared sensing cameras that are mounted uh kind of up and at angles and so they can see all sides of the headset yeah. uh, and the controllers so you've got yeah. hands and head in the world being tracked so it's like kind of another level of, of vr so what what how does your how'd your gravity sketch thing go uh it was pretty good i i certainly am not susceptible to uh like motion sickness uh never have been really like you know, on boats and roller coasters and stuff like that or i never have really gotten car sick um and uh, like 3d movie I, I don't like watching 3d motion pictures because i find cognitively i've bitched about it and i think there's something to it there's a lot of people there's research that's shown it that it's it i can't follow the plot but i don't get sick um so i didn't find Mm -hmm. it bothersome i thought it was pretty neat and and with gravity sketch in particular i could totally see right away that um describing it as less like sketching and more like sculpting was totally true like it's it's very hard to explain and put into words and and to make you believe it because at the same time that 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 one person can have the VR headset on and get the actual VR experience, they were simulcasting it to like a big 60-inch TV so that everybody else in the room could see what the person was seeing. Um, but when you see it on a 2D TV, it doesn't really look any different than any 3D app that you've seen for 25 years, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Uh, but yeah, if you've seen any 3D modeling app, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, when yeah. you have it on, and and you know, you, you can just move your head around, a, a, you know, it, it is very different, and it absolutely comes across more like sculpting than than drawing. It is, mm-hmm. it, you know, even while just making one, uh, you know, putting one thing into the model, you know, it it feels mm-hmm. it totally feels 3D at all times. 
Right. And, you know, he was he was talking about how people adopt it quickly and stuff. And I, I think some people laugh because they, they know, you know, like, hey, VR, there is an adoption curve, which is true. You know, it takes some time to get used to the controllers and all of that. Uh, but I mean, honestly, the controllers are a big barrier because they're fairly clunky now. Yeah. Almost all of them are. The Oculus ones are probably the best. The more ergonomic. Yeah. Um, but all of the controllers are pretty subpar. And until we get full hand tracking, we're not, you know, we're not going to be seeing the true potential. But I will say that, like, I put my dad into a VR headset and he'd been, never been in one before. And I put him into a headset with the controllers and a copy of um, Google's Sketch. Uh, well, it's, I think, tilt, it's called Tilt Brush, right? So it's, it's like a, a, sketching and painting app uh with far less precision it's really about expressive you know painting and things like that um but it's it's quite cool very very rich complex stuff with it and he picked it up like that and like within minutes he had produced a piece of artwork in there that i was like how do i save this right. <laughs> I'm like i can't even save this um and and it's because it translates incredibly well to people that have a great handle on spatial relationships mm -hmm like designers you know the designer industries especially and and architects and things like that they have just a, in their head they've got these frameworks that allow them to to imagine and understand spatial relationships and so to them being able to sketch in 3d is not necessarily it's not um un it's not a barrier to them it's a release Yes, right. And yeah. I think a lot of people assume like, oh, they're going to have to get used to this new way of doing it. And they're like, no, finally, like I've been, you know, I've been tied by pencil and paper or by 2D plane this whole time. And all I wanted to do was sketch in 3D, you right. know, like all my sketching until this point has just been trying to get in 3D. That's what I think VR does is it unlocks these new experiences, right. like, and new, I, new ways I, of doing things. It's certainly no surprise that uh, 30 years ago and prior that all automobile design was done in clay, you know, with actual sculpture. But it's also no surprise to me, even though I'm not a 3D artist or a sculptor, but it's no surprise to me that that stayed through to now long after the CAD revolution where where the CAD schematics for the design of a car can be projected in 3D on a, a two-dimensional screen and you can you know use your mouse or trackpad mm -hmm. or whatever to to pan it around as a wireframe or to use shading to make it look you know there's also you know all the ways right. that you can make 3d look on a 2d screen but i could totally see though for the creative aspect of it that doing it in vr is is uh, it really is to three-dimensional thinking what the original CAD revolution was to two-dimensional, where you really are moving from paper and pencil on a sheet of graph paper to doing it on a computer, that VR is really the first time you're doing it in 3D. Like, the 3D that you can get on a 2D screen doesn't really scratch that itch. Mm-hmm. Yep, makes sense. And, and I, I really do feel that there's there's not much... There's not much you can say to somebody who has never tried it that will express appropriately the like uh, transportation or or sense of place that being in a real 3d environment 
bounded by 3D can give you. And that's, I think, one of the things that has honestly hurt VR a lot in terms of adoption. Uh, I think there are several large technology hurdles that are the main cause of it not really yeah. going wide yet. Uh, and those will need to be overcome. Yeah. But I think that that sense of you have to see it to understand is a real barrier to adoption because you you know yep. it's impossible to tell somebody no like you're really like it is really 3d and they're like yeah yeah i've seen 3d shit you know yeah. you're like no <laughs> you know not quite it's it's more than that you know it's something more and i think that people that are are or designers who have been really really wanting this kind of thing in their workflow um, when they see it, they get it and they they adopt it right away. It'll take longer for the world at large. But the people that have been really hankering for this have really wanted this. And now they have a Mac that can actually push it, which is amazing because yeah. then they could go to that same Mac and launch into their other workflows. I, you know? I, I know I'm guilty of it. I think anybody who's adept at computers and the the earlier back in interface that you're adept at a computer, like if, especially if you're as, as so adept that you're comfortable at the command line uh, – it's easy to overlook uh, just how freeing it is every time the industry levels up and removes a conceptual layer of abstraction. And and a good example, mm -hmm. a really good example is to me like the way that uh, folks on the Asperger syndrome, especially uh, including ones who are really uh, – you know, really severely affected by it. Uh, and that kids uh, who have so much trouble communicating really fly on an iPad uh, and, and just do amazing mm -hmm. things and expressing themselves and, and learning. And you think like, well, why, you know, and, and, and it's really because that, that layer of abstraction of moving a mouse pointer around with a secondary controller it, it it's like it's easy to think like ah you know it touching a button with your finger and touching a trackpad to move an arrow on screen to get the button and clicking the trackpad it's effectively the same thing one's just you know direct and one's it a layer of indirection but that layer of indirection mm -hmm. is truly profound for some people and then for for people who aren't affected by like uh something like Asperger's or any other disability it it you know like my dad my dad is so much better and more effective and and communicates and and i messages me so much more like from his ipad than mm -hmm. than a mac and, and it's just because it, it it you know it it's less to think you don't have to think it through it just happens and that layer of abstraction is totally there for 3d where if you just want to get a slightly different angle like the model like when i was using the gravity sketch there was a car model uh, and then there was also like a, a sneaker. And if you just want to mm. get like a, a slightly different view on the sneaker, the fact that you just move your head the same way that you would get a slightly different view on a sneaker in real life and that the uh, the uh, uh, field of view is exactly the same as looking at a sneaker in real life is it, it, it it's it's just totally different than if I had to do something, click a button or rotate a wheel or move my fingers on a trackpad to rotate the view. Like the fact that I'm rotating the view the way I always do with everything else in the world by just moving my head is it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. Like there's mm -hmm. absolutely. And, and that 
yeah, that deletion of abstraction, as you mentioned, <coughs> is a huge like it's a huge help. It's a huge assist to people that that have issues already, but it is a massive leap forward too for people who who knew what they wanted it right. and just have never been able to get it. All right. All right. Let me take a break here and um, thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Warby Parker. Warby Parker believes glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Their prescription eyeglasses still start at just $95, including prescription lenses with anti-glare coating, uh, no kind of upsell to get like the good lenses. Like you get the good lenses and cool looking frames at just $95. Um, and at that price, that's part of the reason that they, you know, believe it's like that is that it, you know, should be any kind of just like any other kind of accessory, like uh, shoes or a bag or a necktie. Uh, like, do you only own one pair of shoes? Uh, Matthew Panzerino, I know for a fact, owns at least <laughs> two pairs of sneakers. <laughs> a, a couple. Uh, why not have glasses like that? I think like the old days, like I grew up where if you like needed glasses, you got a pair of glasses and then you kept them until they broke or until you needed a new prescription. And then sometimes even when you got the new prescription, you just get them popped into the same frames. Like that's, that's just the way it was. Well, why? Well, part of it is that glasses can be super insanely expensive. If you can get them for 95 bucks, you can get three or four pairs and mix and match, you know, as your mood changes. Um, so new stuff from Warby Parker. Do you have an iPhone 10? If you do, even if you don't need glasses, it is absolutely worth doing this because it's a really cool demo of AR kit. Download Warby Parker's app from the App Store and you can try their brand new feature, Find Your Fit. Find Your Fit uses the iPhone 10's true depth camera to map and measure key facial features. Using these measurements, Find Your Fit recommends approximately 12 Warby Parker frames that are likely the best fit for your face. The process is seamless and only takes a few seconds. If you're like thinking with your iPhone 10, like what are some cool things I can do with this true depth camera other than the Animoji uh, stuff that ships with it? This is absolutely a great example of where this is totally making a new thing possible for apps that just wasn't weren't possible before. Something that just like a still camera, just having a, a front facing still camera, it, it just doesn't do it like like this does. It's really really cool. Look, I've had a pair of Warby. I have a pair of them right here in front of me. Uh, these are my reading glasses, but I've had a pair of Warby Parker glasses. I don't know, four or five years. I uh, still have them. My, my first pair of Warby Parker glasses is still around, so it's not like they're shoddily made or anything like that and don't last. Um, really, really great experience with them personally. Uh, again, they start at just ninety five dollars. Uh, lenses include anti glare, anti scratch coatings. Uh, for every pair you buy, this is great. This has always been true right since the first time I've ever heard of Warby Parker. Every pair of glasses you buy from them, Warby Parker distributes a pair to someone in need somewhere around the world. So all sorts of people around the world who don't have access to uh, – either don't have access or don't have the money for prescription, prescription glasses. And so everything they see is blurry. Uh, imagine what that would be like to go through life and knowing that, that – you don't see everything clearly and that you could, if you only could get a pair of glasses, well, Warby Parker helps make that happen all the way around the world. It's, I think that's fantastic anyway. And they have a free try on program. So if you're not familiar with Warby Parker from previous podcasts where you've heard about them, it, it you think like, well, how do I buy glasses? Even if I see them in the app, I don't want to just see them in the app and hope that they work for $95. Uh, what they have is a free try on program. You order five pairs of glasses, uh, from them. They ship them to you free of charge. And they come not with like prescription glasses, just like dummy lenses. So you can just try them on like you do in a store and see if they fit. See if you like the way they look. 
with no obligation to buy. If you don't like any of the five, just put all five back in a box. It's all it's already got a label, so you don't have to pay for anything. It just ships right back to them. Um, but if you do like them, then you're one step away from having a, a brand new pair of the lenses that you like sent to you with your prescription lenses. Uh, so head to warbyparker.com slash the talk show, warbyparker.com slash the talk show and order your free home try-ons today. That's warbyparker.com slash the talk show. Um, anyway, great, great company. Love their products. Uh, so one of the other companies that demoed the iMac Pro, and again, it was VR, was a company I had never heard of. But when I came home and talked to Jonas about it, he was like, oh, yeah, they make a great VR game. Uh, <laughs> a company called Servios, S-U-R-V-I-O-S. Uh, I don't know what the name of their VR game that they previously had was, but they demoed for us. Uh, it was Hard Hard Data. Hard Data. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's their biggest hit so far. Yeah, well, Jonas was very impressed that I met the uh, founder. Um, they had a new app. I, I hesitate to even. I, I sorry, raw data. Raw data. I, <laughs> it's raw data. I mean, hard data. Raw data is the name of their game. Well, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Hard data is like the Chinese ripoff version of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Electronauts is their new app. And I'm going to call it an app, not a game. And I think it's primarily about the creation of music. Uh, but it it has the feel of a game. It's sort of like, I would say, two-thirds, three-fourths music creation, being a DJ, and a one-third game, sort of like Guitar Hero. Um, mm -hmm. But part of it is that the basic premise was... Um, that you don't have to be a musician to do it and that you can't make anything sound bad. So like in a way that like me, an idiot who doesn't know how to play a guitar, if I just pick up a guitar and try to do anything, it literally sounds like someone who doesn't know how to play a guitar, just picking strings on a guitar. Whereas you get into this game, no matter what you bang. So you, you put the goggles on and you got two joysticks. You call them joysticks. What do you call those things? The controllers. There's two. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. The two. The Vive controllers. There's like one for each hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then that puts, like you said before, that puts your hands in the field of vision of you. And as you move your hands, you see them in real time in the VR world. And you've got the equivalent of like two drumsticks. And you can use it to bang on these things to make tones that go along with this background music that's going. But then you also use the sticks to poke at the controls. Um, it's sort of like you're standing in front of a three-way desk. Like there's a front part that's the main thing. You turn to your right and there's things to select over there and you turn to your left and there's things to select over there. In the meantime, the entire world around you is moving like you're on like, uh, the best way I could describe it is you're like, imagine like you're on a train in the Tron movie, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's like you're in the Tron universe and it's you're constantly moving at high speed on a train, which sort of gives you that Guitar Hero feel. And then if somebody else is playing with you, you can do it two two people at the same time. You can turn to your side and see the other person at a, at the same type mm -hmm. of DJ workstation area over to your side. And you can toss these sound grenades at each other that, um, you know, make other types of noise to go along with the music. Um uh, Super impressive, a very, very impressive technically. 
Um, but I found it fascinating from a user inter- interface perspective because they really were serious that, you know, like real DJs, this is something they envisioned that real DJs could use to, pl- you know, play and customize music, perform live in front of, you know, like a club or a party type atmosphere. Um, and that seems totally credible to me. Um, but it was really interesting as a user, user interface perspective because it, it's a it's a procreation app. Like you're creating music. And the only mm-hmm. interface to it is VR. There is absolutely no way that you that this thing would work on a two dimensional screen without VR. Uh, I, you know, with... yeah. I mean, they're they're they've done a couple of things that are really cool with it. Um, and I I jumped in because I definitely wanted to try it out. I'm a fan of uh, Serbius. I've been following them for years. Uh, I saw one of their extremely early prototypes, very very early on, uh, when they were still doing a lot of hardware. Uh, they've since pivoted or whatever you want to call it, to, to doing mostly softwares because the hardware stuff kind of shook out like, oh, Oculus and Vive, yeah. you know, those kind of took the took the lead. And so they're like, okay, that's fine. That's not our strength anyway. We're going to go with XY. Um, so they've been making software and some some of the best software for the platforms. But um, I, I really like their stuff. I think they have a good handle on what makes VR special, how they've been really pounding the pavement in terms of trying to get, trying to figure out what the best uh, – uh, locomotion models are what the best kind of interaction models are that sort of thing as i think a lot of people don't realize that about ver is that nobody really knows what the hell's going on like even the people that are making the best stuff for the platform and that's also why it's so exciting right it's not done right like the best way to use a mouse and a pointer that's done you know it's it right like then you go touch like what's the best way to use touch it's not completely done, but there's a lot of that that's done, right? Like yep. you be, people know how to how to use touch and how to tell people how to use touch when they're building applications and that sort of thing. But VR is very, very open field. You know, there's yep. a lot of people running a lot of different directions on this. And some people out there are doing some really, really good work to say like, oh, this is how. You know, that we, we think that this is the best way. And then you'll see a lot of people sort of funnel into that. And then some other people go, oh, no, how about this way? You know, but – Serbius has been doing this for a while, and I think it shows in the precision, but you know the good feel of their interactions. You know yeah. how you grab different instruments, how you interact with the instruments, and they do have uh, a, they, feedback they have a bit of haptic mechanisms. feedback. Like when you when you pick mm-hmm. something up with the stick, it, there's just a slight amount of haptic feedback and a little visual yep. feedback where uh, now it's glowing, so you know you've got mm-hmm. it. Right. right. And it's a little tick, like just yeah. so you would feel like, oh, I'm picking up something light, but I know I have it in my hands kind of thing. And, you know, all of those things will get better over time. But I, they had a pretty good, you know, pretty good uh, base set of stuff in there. Right. What Especially would it, when you go to like start pounding on stuff. Right. Yeah. Like it's it's sort of a what would it feel like to pick up a a a zero weight electrical thing? You know what I mean? Like, if mm-hmm. uh, you know, like in the right. Harry, you know, Harry Potter type universe, like somebody you know, with a wand create something that's not real, what would it feel like to pick it mm-hmm. up? That's exactly the sort of right. haptic feedback you get. Like it doesn't, you know, they're not simulating weight, but it's just like just enough of a tick to, you feel like you've got this thing that doesn't Yeah, it's that, that confirmation and, and feedback loop that you need to, to make your mind say, yeah. I have accomplished this task of grabbing this thing, you yeah. know, or, or picking this thing. Um, but then the second thing that they've done, and this is sort of like the underlying technology uh, behind this app, is that they have created this system for synchronizing and um, sort of uh, – 
<laughs> up your musical abilities. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I don't have very good innate rhythm. I used to actually sequence, do some MIDI sequencing way back in the day with like Tracker on the, on the PC, like in the nineties, um, and do a little bit of DJing and stuff like that. But I'm, I am terrible with instruments. So like, I, I can't really, I'm not very good at holding a beat. I can, I can, you know, blow away guitar hero, but don't ask me to play a real guitar. Right. right. Um, but my dad is a musician. He's very good and he can play all kinds of different instruments and all this stuff. I did not inherit it at all. So going into this, you know, I had it, it I was the perfect person to try this. Cause it's like, I love music and I know how I want it to sound, but I can never really get it to sound that way. Um, and so when you bang on these instruments and when you use these, these tools that they have in there to create music, their special sauce is this sort of layer that takes your inputs and melds them with the beat and tempo and other instruments and other things that are going on in the song already and slides them just a few milliseconds one way or the other and slots them in so that they sound beautiful. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how discordant you try to make it. Like you can just bang indiscriminately on the things. It sounds like you're really trying to make music and that you just made something really cool. Yeah. You know, it's that's kind of their special sauce to go with along with the visuals and the other stuff that they've done is to create this sort of I hesitate to use the word because it's so loaded, but it's like an auto tune for instruments. Yeah. Right. So that you can you can sort of go like, you know, bing, bang, boom, but bing, bang, boom. And it's like, boom, like slides it into the beat and it sounds like it was meant to be there. Yeah. You know, and that's a, and this works with all kinds of different tempos and music and stuff. Yeah, it's exactly what I mean about it being at least one third of the way to being more of a game. Because it, it does mm -hmm. feel like if, if you're not good enough and like me, I'm literally have no musical ability at all. I, there's nothing related to music that I can do. I can't carry a tune. I can't sing. I can't t keep to the beat. Uh, and even I couldn't make it sound bad. Like I was trying at first to see if I could make it sound good. And then I tried to make it sound bad. And even I couldn't do it. You know, so someone who can't yeah. do anything good trying to be bad still couldn't get it to be off. And then, it, you know, I, I could see how it would be a lot of fun. Um, you know, yeah, it was fun. It was like, a fun time. I would say I had great fun. DJs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you, you like that. I mean, it's like, you know, hey, I'm transported to this weird platform traveling through this through space right. making music, you know, and that that kind of, you know, allowing somebody or. I guess at its base level, it's empowerment. And people who are in the VR scene talk about empowerment a lot because that's sort of what VR does is it empowers you to do things that you can't do, right? Um, whether that's transport yourself to another world or fly or, you know, be a really cool cyborg or be a musician, you know, or whatever. Um, it has that feeling of transporting you and empowering you. Um, and so that's what they're going after. And I, thought, I think that, you know, obviously I only had a few minutes. So I thought it was really cool. Uh, but they're working with a lot of like professional DJs and people who are big names and, and have, you know, are well respected and, and are masters of their craft. And they said that they what they do have is a, a setting that allows them to turn off all of the help and just allow those guys to create music. Hmm. So that's where the music creation thing comes in. There's a bunch of visual music creation tools that are in there right down to a tracker where you can tweak um, your beats like just one to the left or to the right or hmm. any of that. Like they, it actually pops up a, what looks like to most people like a sheet of music um, but it's essentially a MIDI tracker where you could like say okay I'm going to trigger this sound at this point and this sound at that point that's built in so if you want to get gran granular you can
want to turn off essentially the auto aim or auto assist. Yeah. You can. And so you, whatever sound you make happens right when you want to make it and how you want to make it. And so obviously for music pros or people who are musicians, this is a creation tool that is visual and physical and performance based. So they could, you know, you could perform for somebody in VR. Other people could watch you in VR or hell, even in the physical world, but see the VR representation of you, you know, like projected on the screen or something. And I could definitely see this being something that people use, like in concerts and in group settings and things like that versus a lot of VR, which has sort of an isolation, you know, uh, aspect to it. Um, But I thought that was cool that you could turn off the help. And a real musician can go in there and make real yeah. music. And yet somebody who's really bad at it, like you or I, is like could go in there and still have a lot of fun creating something that sounds cool, you know, and yeah. sounds great and it makes you feel empowered. Yeah. Now they, they just announced it. Uh, we, we got to see it a day before it was officially announced. Uh, so it was officially announced. This is Electronauts app. Uh, it's coming in 2018, they say. So who knows how soon? I mean, what we saw seemed pretty, you know, I don't know how much else there is to do, but it didn't seem to have the part that they showed us didn't really have any rough edges. So maybe it's coming soon. And and to tie this back to the Mac iMac Pro, um, it literally d- cannot run on any other Mac hardware. There's no other Mac that that is capable of running this. Uh, and the iMac Pro is so good at running it that while they it is cross platform and it'll ship for other you know computing systems, the iMac Pro is going to be like their recommended system for the app when it comes out. Hmm. Which is, it's a it's a massive turnaround from yeah. just a couple of years ago with VR. Yeah, I, or, I, or heck, even earlier this year. I, I, like, I really does seem like the takeaway for me is that Apple has really jumped from nowhere in VR, it, completely irrelevant to completely re- relevant, incredible, and yeah, this is a good way to do it. This is a good machine to drive it. I guess would be a way to say it. And again, the right. machines did. And, yeah, it, it really puts them. It puts them in the game. Yeah, you know, it really does. And I think that that was part of their effort on this part is to get them in that game because nobody really knows how this is going to pan out. Uh, but almost everybody thinks that VR will have some position in the computing platforms of the future. And yeah. if that is true then you need to have skin in that game. Yep. Yeah, and things I noticed is that even with the state of the art right now you still see pixels in the VR display, like the, you know, just the limits of driving these things. It's like you, you don't get the VR equivalent of retina yet. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's still massive improvements to resolution to come. I mean, these are the, the, we were talking about this together Wednesday, but things that have to happen to get this, to get VR better. A resolution has to improve dramatically. It needs to get to retina where you don't see pixels. Latency mm-hmm. still needs to be improved. I get the feeling talking to you that latency is way better than it was even just a handful of years ago in terms of like when mm-hmm. you pan when you pan your head, how smooth is the visual uh, translation? And it seems like that's a lot of what made people sick in the early days is that just the wee bit of latency would just make your brain say, oh, I'm sick. Uh, but mm-hmm. la- latency wasn't bad. I wouldn't say it was bad in any of the demos we saw, but it certainly wasn't photorealistic. It wasn't real world realistic. Uh, right. And again, not in terms of does everything look like it's a real world, like I'm completely fooled into thinking I'm in a real world, but just the speed of the latency is just not there compared to what I see when I move my head around this 
office that I'm in right now. And it needs to be, it, it, and and it will get there eventually. Um, and then the third thing is it has to be wireless. And right now to get these experiences, you've Mm got to have the headset hooked up with a wire. And there's just no way Mm -hmm. that there's no way that that's, you know, it, it has to get wireless. Yep. I think that encapsulates most of the major – I mean the, the technical – underlying technical issues that will enable those things are a different discussion. But I think that encapsulates kind of where we need to be, right? It needs to be high-res. It needs to be wireless. It needs to have zero latency. Um, and I think there are a handful of other things that go alongside that, that it needs to be um, – you know, it needs to be lighter and user more user friendly. Yeah, it is a little heavy. It is a bigger, little heavy. You know, I can yeah. I can yeah. see how it's heavy enough that if I were uh, a designer working on sneakers or working on a car, that the weight of it would definitely be a limiting factor in how long like a design session could be. Like it's gonna be, it's gonna get tiresome after forty five minutes mm-hmm. an hour. Yeah, and I have spent. I have spent like five or six, seven hours in VR at once, like in a stretch. Um, and it, you know, it does. It, it's honestly the larger portion of it, it the weight you get used to and a lot of the headsets, especially the the one that you used there was a Vive, uh, this is sort of like a, a V2 uh, version of it, which has like the uh, rear, the rear head strap has like a nice tightening mechanism on it that the first one didn't have. Yeah. So it sort of load balances across your head, you know, but yeah. it's still extra weight. But the larger portion of it is the cable management, to yeah. be honest. Like, you know, seven hours in a headset, you spend a lot of time kicking cables around, you know, Um, I put a little carabiner on my cable and then I clip it to the back of my belt, like in a belt loop in the back. So sort of keeps it behind me like a tail. But still, if you're moving around, especially in an application where you're sketching in 3D or moving around in circles get bothersome. And so you you look at those and you go, okay, for somebody who's going to go to work. And sit, you know, go get to their desk and be like, okay, I'm going to put my headset on and work today, right? And then work until lunch, and then work after lunch until they quit. In a headset, some things have to have to improve, obviously, massively in, in that area. Yeah, yeah, and it, it it doesn't mean that it's not useful now. And you know, it's definitely got years, many years, probably ahead of it before it really gets there, where there is like boom and explodes and and becomes a thing for the mass market. Um, but to me, it's just like every, every step of computers has that time where it's like, okay, it's good enough to be useful for some, but it's not going to be useful for tons of people yet. You know, like what did it take for PCs to be something that most people would want in their house? Effectively, it took the internet because it turns out that the real killer feature for personal computers that would ex- make everybody want to have one was communication. And in the days before the internet, mm-hmm. when either you couldn't communicate, you couldn't use a computer as communication, or you had to do so esoterically through, you know, BBS systems and dial-up modems and stuff like that, it just was no interest to people, you know. Um, and so you can you can say personal computers needed X, Y, and Z before they'd explode in the mid '90s and become this thing that every household had. Um, but that didn't mean that from you know, the late seventies through the early nineties that there weren't millions of us who were enthralled by them and found good uses of them and mm-hmm. built careers on them. You know, I think VR is the same way where it's, it's sort of like uh, right now is like a late eighties era PC 
you know, it's totally useful. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's people who are totally into it and, you know, either having tons of fun with games or doing serious, <laughs> serious work. But it's not it's like late 80s away from being relevant to uh, most people. Yeah, and you could see, like, looking at the experiences of the things that happen right now, you could sort of see yourself in the future looking back and going, wow, we put that much effort into doing that task? Right. You know, it's like, you know, you look back going, oh, what did we do to to put numbers into a spreadsheet and, and you know, apply operators to them? You know, the process of doing that um, – you know, in, in the late eighties was just, it was, you know, nearly insurmountable, but you did it anyway, because it was still better than doing it on paper. Right. You know? Exactly. But it was, was certainly a chore. Yeah. And I think that's how we'll look back at VR in the current state. Like, wow, all those wires and connected to a big old tower PC or, or Mac, you know, all of this stuff to just to get, you know, a 3d world running in your face because, you know, I could do that with my goggles now, you know, <laughs> All right. All right. Let me take one last break here and thank our third and final sponsor of the show, our good friends at Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. At Casper, perfect mattresses are perfectly designed for humans, engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. You spend a third of your life sleeping. So you should be comfortable. I, I, I personally have never, even before Casper was sponsoring this podcast and, and I've been pitching their mattresses, I've long been a, 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 a opponent to the theory of, wow, it's not worth spending a lot of money on a nice mattress because you're only, you're sleeping. You're not enjoying it because you're asleep. I say the opposite. I say sleeping is some of the best, it's the best I feel most of the time. And you want to wake up feeling great. You wake up on a nice bed, you wake up, you feel great. You start your day feeling great. You sleep on a crummy mattress, you wake up feeling crummy. It's, it's I, I'm telling you, I think that mindset of, ah, Put your, you know, I'll spend my money on things when I'm awake, not when I'm sleeping. It's nonsense. You're alive 24 hours a day. Get a good mattress. Uh, and the quality. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep service with just the right amount of sink and bounce. You really don't have to spend a lot of time when you're shopping for a Casper mattress picking which type. It's mostly down to which size. Uh, it's really great. You don't have to get into this. And... Uh, they have a no-hassle return policy, uh, uh, free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. So you get it. It shows up. It, they, they call it a how-did-they-do-that-sized box. You open it up in a room, sucks all the air out of the room, and then all of a sudden you got a mattress. you got like uh, 100 days to sleep on it. You don't like it. They just call them up or go to the website. They'll send a, someone to your house, pick it up, get it out. Uh, couldn't be easier. Really couldn't. Uh, we've got them here in the house. We love them. Uh, really great. They're just they're just good mattresses. Really, really like them. Uh, so here's how you do. Here's what you do if you're in the market for a new mattress. Uh, you can get fifty dollars towards any mattress purchase at Casper by visiting casper.com/slash/the-talk-show. And then remember that code. Same thing as the URL. The talk show at checkout. You plug that code into the little box. Casper.com slash the talk show. Use the code the talk show, and that gets you the 50 buck discount on any mattress. Uh, terms and conditions apply. I don't know. I don't know which terms and conditions, but they do apply. Um, but go check them out at Casper.com slash the talk show. Uh, I'll tell you what, the other demo at that, at that iMac event, or there's, there's a couple more. Um, 
But the twin motion one really blew me away. Uh, twin motion is like this, uh, I guess it's for architects type thing. They call it a real-time visualization app. But it more or less, like if you're an architect, you can like take your CAD files, put them into twin motion, and it turns them into effectively like a video game world, like, but with really high resolution. Uh, they didn't demo it with VR, did they? At least when we were there, but I believe it does, it does have a VR angle. Um, but it, 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 like they had, what they did for the demo is they had like the architectural plans for an air, an airport and they put them into twin right. motion and it, it, it gives you this near photorealistic rendering of the airport that you can move around in, in 3d, like a 3d shooter, but it, it, you know, it, so you're not waiting for individual stills to render. You're just moving in real time and it animates and it gives you, and it, you can set the camera to different heights. And obviously the one that would be interesting would be like the typical height of a pair of human eyes on the pathway. And you just get this sense of what would it be like to be in this airport or to be dropped off outside this airport. Here I am outside the airport. <laughs> Sorry, that's my son. <laughs> Hi, buddy. How you doing? <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. You'll be in the airport, yeah. <laughs> Apparently not a fan of an airport. Uh, and it's got these, sl- you know, you can set what season of the year it is, what the weather's like, like what's it going to look like when it's raining, what's it going to look like at noon when the sunshine is streaming in uh, at, you know what's it going to look like at five o'clock in mm-hmm. the winter when it, the sun is setting uh, just amazing in terms of visualizing and, and as somebody who to me I, I you show me the floor plans of a house you know like a two-dimensional architectural drawing of the floor plans it's like i can get a vague mm-hmm. sense of what it would be like to be there but i really it just does not my mind just does not extrapolate a two-dimensional drawing into well what would it actually be like to be in this room i i don't get it like mm-hmm. software like this would be phenomenal to me just absolutely game changing as a just as a client or you know uh you know if, if i was commissioning like a new office or buying a new house or something like that to be able to actually see it before you know construction starts it, it, this is unbelievable yeah i mean the speed at which it it worked was sort of the 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 key yeah. cuz like the it's it was definitely possible to do this before uh but definitely not at this speed and i i think this was a recurring theme and a lot of the stuff that we saw was that people were quoting things like this happens 3 5x 10x faster right. than we could do it before yep. and a, it was definitely repeated and i think renee mentioned this in his write up but it was definitely repeated over and over that they were able to do things now in real time. Yep. You know, that, that yep. took them much longer. It took a lot of cycles of either rendering or, yep. or processing back and forth uh, to accomplish. So the ability to take a, a client's model and drop it in and open it up and show it to them in a walkthrough and then make a tweak and show them the walkthrough again almost immediately um, is you know that's the key right yeah. that's what you want and you want to be able to to have that power to do that yeah. and they were showing off the the iMac Pro's ability to do it yeah. it runs an unreal engine it's nothing exotic in, you know on the technology front uh, but it's a very clean very usable tool that allows you to in real time take a, a 
client through various weather conditions and, and even add and subtract features like trees and water and that sort of thing uh, and and for them to see the results immediately, which yeah. is, you know, it's all about that feedback thing. And if you're in an agency setting or a design setting, feedback loops are the killer. Yeah. Like that's what yeah. destroys your time and yeah. your turnaround and all of that. Yeah. It's just it's the ability to say make a change and see it immediately that is invaluable in that setting. Yeah. Um I have it in my notes here that it was literally that the rendering speed is five times faster than on the current high-end quad core i7 iMac. And that that's the difference between doing it in real time at maximum quality or having to, you know, sort of stutter through it at high quality or go through in real time at a much lower visual quality. And they do things, they had crazy Mm -hmm. things in the app too, where it was like you could paint trees, you could just get like a a paintbrush and in 3d so like if you had like the front of the the airport it's like it was just grass and they were like well what if the client says why why can't we fill that in with trees you just you know paint it in with trees and then all of a sudden the trees are there so instead of like taking a note render the front with trees and scheduling another meeting and having the client come back mm-hmm. to see it again what does it look like with trees it, you know it, you're doing it in 15 20 seconds in real time right there mm-hmm. right and uh, and that short circuits that whole loop, um, and I think that's you know it's money, yeah. right? It's money. You're paying your paying your people money to sit around and wait for feedback, and you're you know you're paying your executives to sit around and wait for the work to be done, and all of that. And so it's it, it really is a a domino effect on yeah. your effectiveness and therefore your budget. Yeah, that was really that really was the recurring theme of the demos was doing things in real time that previously either took a rendering stage where you'd have to go get coffee or take a break to see it. Or if you did it in real time, doing it at a lower fidelity and then still having to do a final render to get the high, you know, the, the true fidelity version of it, whether it was a visual thing or like an audio thing with logic pro, um, that was absolutely the recurring theme. And I think that's, I think it's just true for all creative people that doing it, doing something in real time, you know, uh, makes it feel like it's waiting on your talent as opposed to when you're not working in real time and you feel like you're waiting on the computer. Yeah. And I think that, that, that is underrated by anybody who doesn't, doesn't do it on a daily basis. So I think you'll get a lot of people who are commentating on, um, the you know the value of that of that real time nature of things or the value of the um the the loop being short circuited or clipped or whatever but i'll tell you when you are in a creative when you're doing creative work and i used to do obviously a lot of photoshop work with you know, when i was doing photography and you know i i developed a flow you develop a flow of getting your images imported into lightroom making broad adjustments making minor adjustments bouncing out to photoshop to make retouching and then back to lightroom and on through your process uh you know and then to export and so on and so forth but i'll tell you when you get in your flow 
being able to have things happen immediately, it, it stops you from interrupting your flow. It really keeps you more productive. It keeps you in that, in that zone that you get into. Yeah. And for like somebody who's doing video editing or doing, you know, audio, especially things where the creative nature of the thing that you're working on really feeds into that flow. It, it's a huge thing. To be able to get that immediate response and feedback and not have to wait for it to, to do what you want it to do. Um, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think here. The other demos, we didn't talk about the Cinema 4D one. That was, it was interesting, but that was sort of the uh, uh, just the most... Uh, Look, this is a thing that is super computationally <laughs> yeah. complex. Well, and it's now hard it's a lot to gauge faster. the impact of, right? right? Because like they took something that was literally the level of complexity that you'd find on a feature film right. and were adjusting the viewport and saying, Look, this is happening. But until you see how long it used to take right. like physically, it's hard. You know, right. it's hard. And I you know, I've seen scenes that complex because I've done like media visits at at, you know, um effects houses and things like that. And people have shown me like literally the scenes that have gone into a blockbuster and like, Hey, I'm moving this around and showing you, uh, I could change this bridge, you know, the way this bridge explodes or whatever the case. And, and I could like, I get it. Like an extremely complex 3d scene rendered with texture and lighting that mat nearly matches one-to-one what you're going to see on the screen. Uh, but being able to view that and show that in, in near real time with just a couple of minutes in between, pretty good and fully rendered is crazy yeah. you know that's it's huge and they they were stacking up external gpus to make that happen they said yeah. they could add or subtract depending on the complexity of the scene um but to me like i mean that's cool it's just a little lower impact unless you're in that industry yeah. you know somebody in that industry would have been like holy shit you know but for us it's just like oh well, that's cool you know um but i also believe that it, it truly will in the end it'll it will improve or expand the ability and options of artists in that industry because as you and I both know, like the moment you expand computing capability, um, people's uh, desires and, and ambitions expand yeah. to fill app. Yeah. You know? So when, once you're able to stack two or three or four or five external GPUs onto these Thunderbolt ports and access all that compute power to, to render these frames, people will go, hey, my scenes can get two or three or four more times yeah. com more complex yeah, and, and it, more detailed. Like, it did yeah. seem like their role in the demo rotation was to be the that, – that was the one that used external GPUs plugged in via Thunderbolt 3 and to sh show that, you know, hey, you, you know, they had two of them or at least two boxes. Who knows how many GPUs were in those boxes, but – um, you know, and <laughs> it was, again, it was sort of hard because they, it almost was the one that I think would have most benefited from having like uh, some other Mac, either a, a, you know, the highest end Mac pro or a iMac, a regular mm -hmm. iMac or something side by side to show just how much faster it was. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the guys from cinema 4d were very excited about this. The performance that they were getting. <laughs> the other, another demo they had, there was, what else was there? There was Adobe Dimension, which is an app I'd never even heard of before because I'm sort of just out of that world, but very cool app. It's, it's basically a 3D rendering for 
regular graphic designers, you know, where let's say you're like the example that they had was like the graphic design for a bag of potato chips. So you're doing the, you know, it was an illustrator file in two dimensions that shows what the, uh, you know, bag of potato chips would look like coming off the printer as a two dimensional sheet of foil. And then you move it into dimension and all of a sudden it's a three-dimensional bag of potato chips that's sealed up has the crimp at the top and you can apply different lighting effects and get a truly photorealistic rendering of what it would look like as a real package um and that was the one i thought it was pretty interesting that uh that the Adobe's thing is cpu bound not gpu bound although they did say that they were looking at it you know moving some of it to gpu but uh that the mm -hmm. more that was one that the the more cores you throw at it the faster the renderings would be right and and they were i think they were emphasizing too that you know you not every application would benefit from more cores and i think that this has been a constant debate you know as multi as hyper threading and multi-core processors have gotten more common over the last decade you know people often judge performance you know very differently right. uh, based on the kind of applications that they're throwing at these things and um, the more is not always better debate is the prime example you know this scenario is a prime example of that right. um you know an 18 core processor may not actually be all that great for somebody who's doing something that requires a single thread at a high frequency and yeah. um in the case of a render pipeline though you know when you can assign multiple tasks to different cores uh and be intelligent about it it, it can be very helpful to have those additional cores yeah adobe's uh, the adobe rep said that it their their scales linear linearly, so you really do every time you add a core, you get increased performance. Um, thought it was pretty interesting. And then the last demo, or I guess the other two that were from Apple itself, and they had an Xcode demo, or a developer demo, really, because they emphasize that they know that Macs are super popular with developers, but they also know that developer quote unquote developer doesn't just mean people writing iOS and Mac applications. Uh, the statistic they quoted was that 60% of all GitHub developer activity is done from a Mac, that they worked with GitHub to get these stats. And that, you know, means all sorts mm -hmm. of, you know, you know, stuff that purely runs on the web uh, and that sort of stuff. So that's pretty incredible given the Mac's overall market share that it's up to 60% of all GitHub developer activity. Um, Mm -hmm. So what they demo? They demoed three iOS simulators running at once, which is not something that you could do before um like you don't have like one ios develop you know simulator running at a time what they have like two it was like two iphones and an ipad running all the same time on screen um running a bunch of automated tests in the simulator to test the app uh, a couple of vmware i think it was vmware they were using uh but vmware uh, virtual machines one of them running linux that was like installing a compiling a bunch of software from scratch uh like an apache php sort of uh environment um another vmware instance running windows 10 and they even joked that how you know when's the last time you saw apple running windows <laughs> in a in a product demo <laughs> running chrome which is not known as a you know performance <laughs> You know something that's light on the CPU. So running a bunch of automated, yeah. automated uh, client side tests of a web app in Chrome mm -hmm. in Windows in a VM, while in a terminal window on the Mac itself, uh, they were using uh, 
brew to install like a ton uh, they had a script installing and compiling from scratch a ton of software um for the mac itself yeah, compiling a linux install from source right uh <laughs> <laughs> essentially yeah so it you know all and all of that running at once uh and again i went behind the machine while it was still running put my hand there and there's no you know wasn't like a hair dryer <laughs> blowing out the back uh so you know very impressive and i really do think that was a huge part of the message you know i think that's why one of the people who got you know to go back to earlier in the show and who got seated with these things a week in advance why did david uh hannemeyer hansen you know the create co-creator of rails and uh from Basecamp, not really like an ios developer type person uh mm -hmm. you know but they gave one to him and i think he's you know very popular uh individual in that sort of open source web development world uh and it you know to say yeah this is a machine for us mm -hmm. yep and and i think that that's you know the goal is they wanted to kind of capture a spread um and to make sure that they, they didn't pigeonhole the messaging or use um because they there is um an appetite a voracious appetite for a more powerful mac from a lot of different vectors not just one you yeah. know and i think that's so important to remember for a lot of people uh, and it's definitely something that apple's cognizant of uh frankly people like the mac they like the software that runs on it they like the environment they like the fact that people who build applications for it give a crap uh unlike windows uh sorry but it's true you know the windows developer system is is anemic by comparison uh whether you like windows or not it's it's, it's hard to argue that um and they like all of those aspects of it. What what they don't like is it being underpowered in relation. Right. Um, and honestly, the the cost is one way to look at it. Uh, and I think you could look at the cost. And some people would say, "Oh, I could build it cheaper." But those people are fine giving up all of the finesse touches, the high security aspects of the T two, the you know the uh, the screen being the best on the market, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they go like, "Oh, well, raw power." You know, I can build it cheaper or whatever. But the people that appreciate those details and need or want them, people in the the uh, industries where color correct um, screens matter a hell of a lot uh, and where screen real estate matters a heck of a lot, uh, you know, those arenas want more power and they want – they are sick of it being underpowered. So I think that they're addressing those aspects of it pretty well with the iMac Pro. Yeah, and for, you know, there's certain... It does all kind of flow together, you know, uh, in it, the Apple product ecosystem, but where if you're editing uh, 5K video with um, the, the... What's the extra color depth uh the p3 color space yeah the p3 color stuff and you're editing it in final cut pro on an imac and then you go and show it to somebody else it, it on an ipad pro it looks exactly the same it's you know there's no you know you don't need right you don't need to right. worry about that and somebody who's really trying to sweat the details on exact the exact color grading that you're getting out of this and applying to the the, the source footage if if somebody else is looking at it on an iPad Pro or on their iMac I, I, MacBook Pro or something like that, it's going to look the same, and that's that's just huge for a professional environment. 
Yep, exactly. And people that are that are don't, that aren't in that industry are you know are, are in, in those industries where you've got a high pressure delivery time situation and you need uh, your color correction to show up perfectly on an iPad Pro that you hand somebody for approval as it, you know, the same as it did on your 5K iMac screen. You know, they're not going to get it. But the people that do get it are – they're like, finally. You know, finally I can do yeah. that. So last the last thing I wanted to talk about was – is the future of this. And it, it's like I wrote in my piece like, well, these machines are clearly great. And I think they're a solid value and they're super useful right now today. But you could say the same thing in 2013 when the Trashcan Mac Pros shipped, that these are super impressive pieces of in- engineering. It's obvious that Apple put a lot of work and thought into it, and then they never updated it. Uh, and you know, for these things to really put Apple back in the game as, as a company that provides truly world-class workstation hardware for people you know, like across the board, developers, designers, 3D people, VR people... It's not enough just to come out with one round of iMacs in December of 2017. Like, you know, and Apple's never going to update them every three months, like the way that the, the component PC industry, you know, it's, as soon as new stuff comes out, you can just custom configure it into a box and then just get it there. It's not like they're going to update every three months, but they need to update like at least roughly every year. And that never happened with the Mac Pro. And and I think the, con- the reasonable concern people would have is, do you want to make an investment in this platform having to hope, you know, or trust, I guess, that Apple is going to remain committed to it? Mm-hmm. Yep. And the pacing of the industries that they're trying to target with this definitely remains a concern and a big issue. Right. You know, if you are looking at BR, the the machines that were running BR at top spec two years ago are not the same machines right. as today. And you know, you would you would see a significant degradation in your ability to develop for those platforms or run them as a consumer um, if you made a bet on on something that you know was not able to advance along with it. So if they are planting a flag in the VR industry. Are they going to have that same position in two years if the iMac Pro is not updated? Right. And and I think, you know, and and the concern that people have, and, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable, is that Apple let the Mac Pro languish, uh, maybe not because they completely lost interest in it, but like that they made some bad bets on where things were going, underestimated the importance of, you know, GPUs. Uh, in 2013, I mean, they more or less said this to us last April, you know, when we talked to Federighi and Schiller, you know, Federighi even said, you know, that they painted themselves into a thermal corner. Uh, I believe that's a direct mm-hmm. quote, but if not, it's super, super close. Um, so it wasn't like they completely lost interest. It was like they found themselves painted into a corner. But the reasonable expectation that people can have is they're never going to let that happen, even if they make a mistake with the iPhone it's too important to them and they make too much money. They'll pay whatever it costs to correct the mistake year after year. Um, you know, and that the Mac being a, a less of a financial, a, a revenue generator for the company means that you, you're at the risk that, that there something else is going to take their attention away from, from these products. I think you know, I feel like we have to wait and see, but I feel like they're in a better spot and that the this 
these Mac iMac pros aren't going to find themselves in that trap that the Mac pro did, because I feel like they're, they're clearly oriented towards the future that they are already very, very strongly geared towards GPU intensive computing. I, I really do feel like that's the case. And I feel like what happened, they made a bad bet with the design of the Mac pro in 2013. They're correcting it now. And I feel like whatever they're going to come up with is is going to be built for the future. And they'll have that, you know, configurable box for pros that you can do what you want inside the box um, built for the future. And I feel like we've never had an iMac Pro before because this is really the earliest that they could do it, that they couldn't make a machine that you would think of as an iMac in terms of form that would have the performance characteristics of a high-end workstation until now. Yeah, I mean, the, the talk about thermals was interesting because I think this has something like 67% more um, cooling in it than the previous iMacs. Yeah, I think that's exactly uh, right. They doubled the amount of fans on it, um, all of that jazz. Um, so they were very concerned about keeping it cool and keeping the performance high. And yet, as you mentioned, even though they were, they were really powering through stuff, um, it really didn't seem like it was being taxed or getting all that hot or, you know, yep. outgassing a, a ton of hot air or anything. So that to me, the amount of power that's in those machines, given the amount of heat that's coming out of them right now, I think they built in a lot of overhead in the cooling. Yep. So I think that, you know, given that we saw the stuff that was going on with those, all the applications that were pushing those Macs, they weren't getting very hot. The fans weren't going crazy. I think that the current amount of power in them uh, has some overhead as far as the thermals go. In other words, I think they learned their lesson a bit and have built in a little bit of future-proofing. I think we're going to see more power come out of this current iMac casing before maybe they redesign the whole thing. You yeah. Know? yeah, I do too. I, and I do feel... Uh... You know, sometimes failure is the best teacher, you know, and I feel like they're not like trying to sweep the 2013 Mac Pro under the rug. It's like I really do feel like they've learned from it. I really do feel like they're not just paying lip service to, yes, we love the professional market and we really do want to build machines that make them happy. Um, I, I really do feel like they mean it and that, you know, this is, you know, the first tangible sign of that in, in quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to get disheartened if you don't see your concerns being addressed or you feel that you, a whole segment that you belong to is being overlooked. So yeah. I think they're doing what they can to sort of counter the messaging and then also deliver some, you know, real applicable hardware uh, to a, a good segment of the market that's been feeling like they've had to make do with whatever they've got. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to get into a systems architecture lesson because i'm not fit to 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 lecture it but it really is clear just at the high level and what you hear from them that this is absolutely this is a lot like like modern day apple is is like a head-to-toe systems maker like they're not this imac is not some kind of box where there's a oh we just took this cpu from intel and we took these graphic cards from radeon and ram from you know, whatever company and we just stick them all in the back of a display and that's it. Like this thing is in a lot of ways, like an iOS device, like an iPhone in terms of being all of these parts are custom designed to fit together. And the best example of it, I don't think you and I really talked about it much. I know you mentioned it, but that this T2 chip, 
the T1 is the the sort of system on a chip in the MacBook Pros with the Touch Bar, and the T2 chip is is running on the iMac. Now the iMac doesn't have any kind of like Face ID or Touch ID, so there's no biometrics, but it does have a secure enclave. It is effectively an iOS, a little miniature iOS computer running in there. Um, but the thing that was most interesting to me is the way that the T2 handles the um, uh, it's the it's the it's the flash controller for the SSD. So the the controller that handles the reads and writes is no longer on the actual SSDs. It's on the T2 chip, mm-hmm. which uh, among other things. Like the benefit of this is that it handles all the security. So all rights to the SSD, all rights are, are encrypted. Um, whether you have out of the box, out of the box, there's no way around it. And and it's one of the ways that like when I wrote about it, like the systems couldn't run a spinning hard disk even if Apple wanted to. There's no way internally. Mm-hmm. You can obviously plug one in by you know a USB or whatever, but internally it can't even run a, an H uh, spinning hard disk. It's SSD only. Uh, they're encrypted out of the box, whether you're using File Vault or not, and it uh, uh, it doesn't use the CPU. The T2 chip handles with a dedicated AES, you know, encryption decryption chip handles it, so that the encrypted decrypted reads and writes are at a hundred percent performance of the SSD. They happen faster than the SSD can read or write, so you still get a hundred percent. 100% performance, even though it's all encrypted. Right. Encryption with zero performance hit, which right. is up until this point, you always had to say, look, look, I'm going to turn on File Vault, but I know I'm going to take a little bit of a performance hit, a, a performance overhead on my on right. my uh, CPU right. uh, to, in order to do this. And right. most people were okay with that, that are security minded, right. but now you get it for quote unquote free. Right. It's sort of, you know, honestly, it's uh, to make an analogy. It's like the, secu- the, the convenience hit you take by locking the doors to your house and you have to come up. And now when you go in your house, you have to take a key out and put a key in a lock and twist it and then turn the doorknob. And most people who I know accept that and lock their house when they leave, <laughs> even yeah, though right. it would be easier if you could just walk up and, and it's, you know, it's the equivalent of like just being able to walk your, your house is locked, but it, you know, authenticates who you are and you just walk up, turn the doorknob and go in you know you get all the mm-hmm. benefits and none mm-hmm. of the hits but that means if you took the ssd modules out of the imac you couldn't read or write them once they're unpaired with the t2 chip so the question i have i wish i would have asked it i don't know what the answer is is what's even the benefit of file vault now as opposed to just putting a firmware hard uh, uh password on the imac pro itself because the well John, are always you're in luck because I asked, and you probably weren't listening. Oh, did you really? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> well, this is why I had you on the show. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, hold on. Let me find uh, – I think my notebook's right here. So I, I asked that because I had the same thought. Like, oh, okay, well, so everything's encrypted. If you t- if somebody managed to, like, grab your machine and take it apart, you know, the SSD will not function separately from that T2 or whatever. Um, so if it, if it was to get scrapped – you know, mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be, couldn't read it. So I asked, "What the deal? What is the deal with Fireball?" Is what I asked them. Um, and basically, they said that it handled different cases because, let's say, for instance, you were to put the machine into target disk mode, Fire Vault would require that you had your user password as well. 
as as the system being on and active. Whereas if you were to put it in target disk mode, the T2 would see that as a legitimate write re- read request or write request, and it would be it would handle those that interaction because it's at the very base level of the system. Hmm. So you're getting encrypted read writes from the T2, but the file vault adds an additional layer of security by injecting your user key into the encryption hmm. pipeline. So you have an additional kind of layer of I this is me. And I authorize this, whereas the T2 is not really involved with identity at all. Hmm. It's just saying this machine is secure from external read-write attempts, things like that. But if you are in the official pipeline of a, a read-write, the T2 is going to facilitate it. It's going to say, sure, you know, no problem, absolutely, right? But the file vault is sort of an additional lock on that that is like, hey – not just anybody that has access to this machine, but me specifically. I authorize this right. this to be read, read and written to. All right. There we go. Uh, yeah. Well, that sounds like a show to me. That's exactly – I can't believe that my question was actually in your notebook. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, Matthew Panzer, thank you for returning to the show. It was good to see you this week. Uh, everybody can, can uh, follow you on Twitter at, at Panzer, P-A-N-Z-E-R. Uh, and they can read uh, your excellent work and the work of your fine staff at TechCrunch.com uh, every day. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hey, have a good weekend. May the force be with you.